Well, I'll tell you what, we have a, we have a word this morning um, from the Lord. Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word? We are in a series called Entering the Land um, in the book of Joshua. Here we are, verse 13, chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark, On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard, going ahead of the ark of the Lord. And then down in verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I'm asking that you would pour out your grace upon us here, that we would not be offended by your judgments, but rather convicted by them. Lord, I pray for the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we are so desperately in need, especially in this country, of a renewed fear of the Lord, the right fear of the Lord that Jesus delighted in. Would you come? Would you have your way? Would you speak like only you can speak? God, we love you, and we will give you praise for this. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. 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 You may be seated. So the title of today's message is Agreeing with God. Point one, agreeing with God's holiness. This is a a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus to Joshua. 
And Joshua asks when he sees him, as human beings often do, which side are you on? And he says back, neither. God, God doesn't think like we think. He doesn't take sides. When God comes, he takes over. During the Civil War, there was back and forth between the Union and the Confederacy, and it was a very difficult war, and this young soldier came to Abraham Lincoln and said, said Sir, is God on our side, or is he on the side of the Confederacy? And Abraham Lincoln said, that's, that's the wrong question. The question is not, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? My son-in-law has been in a, in, a, in a political conversation with somebody that's very fired up about politics and, and, and has sent him stuff from different people in politics that uh, uh, of this person believes in God and stuff he says about God and says he says about the Bible and and. And we're chatting, and he says, I don't know, but whenever politicians talk about God, I become suspicious. And, uh, and I filled in the blank. Are they allowing God to use them in his purpose? Or are they actually using God to accomplish their own purpose? Are they allowing God to use them for his greater purpose, or are they trying to use God to accomplish their own purpose? (laughs) Here's why I repeated that question twice. It's not just politicians. It's human beings. This is the question we all have to ask. At the end of the day, am I available for God's purpose through me? Or am I really trying, if if, if the truth be told, am I trying to use God for my own purpose? To get God on my side. The first thing that the Lord says to him is take your sandals off because you are on holy ground. This is, this is a preparation of Joshua to go into the land. Very similar to Moses' first experience with God, preparing him to be a deliverer. He, God appears in the burning bush and he says this to Moses in Exodus 3.5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. You know, we have an expression, don't we, that that you need to walk in someone else's shoes to get their perspective. And the idea is, is that to really understand somebody, you have, to, you have to put yourself in their shoes, and then you can think about how they would think and, and respond how they would respond. But, but you can't put God's shoes on. God is holy. Holy means separate. 
There is a recognition that God isn't like us. He is above us. He is beyond us. He transcends us. His ways and thoughts are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Listen to, listen to Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. He is the uncreated, self-sufficient God. He is in a completely different category than we are. He is the author of life, and everything that exists draws its life from him. God is in a category of one. Here is one way to think about it. You and I, it says that we were created by Christ and for Christ. This is Colossians 2.10, and we are complete in him. So you and I can only be complete in this relationship with God. But God doesn't need you or me to be complete. He is complete in himself. He has no needs. If you believe in him, it doesn't make him greater. If you don't believe him, it doesn't make him less. He is entirely other than us. He's in a category of one. You don't try to put his shoes on. You take your shoes off and worship. He is holy. He is above and beyond. And until we have that recognition, I don't think we can really partner with him in entering the land. I don't think we can really join him in what he is able to do and what he wants to do through people just like you and me. In Isaiah chapter 6, we are given the call of Isaiah. Here's, here's how it works. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple. He is high and he is lifted up. And he sees these seraphim, and the translation of seraphim is burning ones. He sees these burning ones going around the throne, and they are saying, holy, 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 possibly speaking of the Trinity, possibly just magnifying how other God is than us. He is God. He is holy beyond all measure. And then Isaiah says this about himself, I'm ruined. The vision of God's holiness has ruined me. I, I am an un, I'm a man with unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And there is this brokenness before God. And in the humility of that place, God is able to say, I have shown you my holiness in your sinfulness, not to destroy you or judge you, but so that you know the truth, because I've made atonement for you. And he takes a coal off the altar and puts it on his lips and says, your sin has been atoned for. And it's only then that Isaiah says, he hears a voice that says, who will go for me? And then he says, here am I, send me. To partner with God in his purposes, we have to come to this place where we recognize God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. It is our privilege and our honor to partner with him. But make no mistake about it. He is not served with human hands. He could do it all by himself without you and I involved. In 2013, we started 
sabbaticals for our staff. I, I remember clearly how it started. Joel went to our elder board and asked me, Joel could see that I was burning out. And he asked the elders to give me a sabbatical. And, and so we, we, we decided to make one for all the pastors. So over these, it's every seven years, you get two months. And, and, and so we've had one whole round of sabbaticals now. And, and different experiences. Whenever a pastor comes back, we hear the story of how God spoke to them and what God did to them. And, and, and one theme has been in every single sabbatical. Sometime during that sabbatical, God has shown that pastor that he's not needed. <laughs> I don't, this is, your ministry's not all hinging on you and, and the youth group or the young marrieds or the, or the, or, or the women. It's not all hinging on you. I, I could do this without you. However, I have called you and it is your privilege to serve if you so desire. Agreeing with the holiness of God. Secondly, agreeing with God's right to judge. I know that modern day atheists especially are very offended by what happened with the Canaanites when God came into the land of Canaan and, and, and try to treat it as if this is ethnic cleansing and and. And God ordained, listen, this is not ethnic cleansing. This is divine purification. Sin that is not repented of or judged is going to spread. This had already happened on the planet one time with Noah. In the days of Noah, the Bible says that sin had spread so rapidly that the, the thoughts of everybody's heart, the intentions of everybody's heart were evil, and God was sad that he had created people. Now, this is an anthropomorphism. God, God knew all this, and, and so you just, God puts himself in the story so that we can see how he feels about something. He was sad, and judgment had to come to stop that, and one family was saved at that time. But make no mistake about it, God's plan wasn't judgment. God said to Noah, I'm going to give them 120 more years. The Holy Spirit is going to strive with them for 120 years. The Holy Spirit's going to call for repentance so that judgment doesn't have to come. And before you jump to conclusions about the land of Canaan, you need to recognize in Genesis 15, 16, God says, I'm giving the Amorites 400 years. The Amorites is the largest group in Canaan. And, and so God says, uh, their time has not come yet. That's why you're going to go to Egypt for 400 years. I'm giving them a chance. 400 years. Now, in the foreknowledge of God, he sees they're not going to repent. And that's how, the, how they come in. But God has a right to judge us. He created us. He can judge us. The Bible says he will. Every single one of us. Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that the judgment. The most important day of your existence. Is the day you will stand before God. Every single one of us. God created us. And he has a right to judge us. In the, in the book and movie, Patterns of Evidence, 
Timothy Mahoney tells about what they have found in Jericho. They found pottery in Jericho, in the original Jericho that dates to the 1400 B.C. They have found that it was indeed burned. They found that the walls did not fall in. They fell out and they created a slope so that you could go right up. They found that it was in right after the spring harvest because in all of the homes there was grain found in, in, in clay pots that was filled up. They knew that, and of course the Bible says it was during Passover, which is in April. They found that the siege was very short. <laughs> if the siege was long, all the grain would have been gone. But the grain's all there and the city was entirely Burned. This is in the record of our uh, geology. This happened. God has a right to judge. So, years ago, we had this 1996 Buick Century. And I don't know what it is about me, but I just can't seem to let go of cars. I just keep fixing them and fixing them. We were in Cottage Grove at the time, and, and so they knew me on a first-name basis. I was always there, in there, getting it fixed. And one time, I'm going in there, and the way it works is they look at it, and then I get the estimate, and then we decide whether we're going to do it. Well, the, the main guy isn't there. It's his assistant. He's like a 22-year-old kid. And he, he, he's, he's telling me the estimate. He's telling me the work that needs to be done. And he looks at me, and he says, Sir, which, when people call me sir, I feel very old. <laughs> um, sir, he says, sometimes it's time to get a new car. And here's the reality. I have the deed to that car. I, I don't owe the car to keep fixing it and fixing it and fixing it. If I want to get rid of that car, it is my privilege, it is my right to get rid of that car. I'm the owner. I have the deed to it. It's very important in your faith that you understand that God doesn't owe you something. God doesn't have to do anything for you. God doesn't have to. God doesn't have to. God when he gives us opportunity, it's his mercy, it's his pleasure, and we never, ever want to presume on it. The Bible says in Romans 2.4 that his, his kindness and patience with us is meant to lead us to repentance. It's not to be presumed on. Pastor Tom, I don't like that. I don't like hellfire preaching. I don't like it. I don't, I don't like that. You know, that was, that was years ago. There was hellfire preachers and hellfire preaching, and I don't like that. Listen, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. You can't decide, I don't want to believe in hell. I don't like hell. I don't like thoughts of hell. Uh, sorry. Here's what you need to understand about Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you just read right through them, here's what you're going to find out about hell. Jesus never threatened his enemies with hell. Jesus warned his friends about hell. He wasn't holding it over people. No, this is the people he loves. L listen to one passage. This is, this is um, Luke chapter 13. 
Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. When Jesus says, do you think, let me tell you this, they were thinking that. <laughs> they had it in their mind that really bad people get judged and when really bad things happen, that that happens to really bad people. And the other side of that coin is, and we're really good people. And here's, here's what Jesus says. No, you're actually no better than they are. And if you don't repent, you will also perish like they did. Repentance is a repentance of pride. Pride is when we are in the center of our life, when we see ourselves as the answer to our problems. Pride is when I'm in the middle and God has given us aids to show us the folly of pride. God's helped us to embrace our dependency. You know how he did it? He actually made us dependent on created things. He, we are dependent on oxygen. We, we, he has made us so that we, if we don't breathe, we can die in an hour. He made us dependent on water and food so that we would recognize, whoa, we're not that great. We're not that strong. We're actually very, very fragile. It should not be that hard to embrace dependency on God because if you just see the setup, we are, we are fragile. Pride is an illusion. A.W. Tozer in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, unbelief in God is actually perverted faith. Instead of believing in the all-sufficient, uncreated, faithful, reliable God, you are in unbelief, you are putting your trust in fallible, dying, transient, deceitful, dependent human beings. Mainly yourself. <laughs> you still have faith. It's just very, very twisted. And instead of having the object of your faith, this amazing God, you've taken your faith and you put it in this Really unamazing, broken, fallible, transient. And if you just did a little research on yourself, you would know the smallest thing. You could be dead. We are alive simply by the mercy of God. But pride, of course, is very, very deceitful, and how it gets in is very deceitful. So I'm going to now read to you the passage that is the strongest passage in the New Testament. And I want you to remember that this is a warning to friends. There is a church in Laodicea that, that got into a perverted gospel where instead of Jesus being the center, 
They remained the center, and they added a little Jesus to it. And, and the result of that, the fruit of that, is always that you'll be very lukewarm because Jesus is just, it's kind, he's kind of my buddy, and it's nice to have him around, and I've, of course I've got that ticket to heaven when I die, but my life is about me, and I'm running my own life. Well, here's the interesting thing about Laodicea. We're going to read the passage in a minute, but the whole city was prideful. They were a a city of doctors and highly educated people and people of great wealth. And Laodicea was actually destroyed by an earthquake, and Rome offered to help rebuild, offered government money to help rebuild. They said, nope, we'll do it ourselves. And so whatever is in a culture, of course, it's easy for that to come into the church. So here we go. These are very strong words. Revelation chapter 3, verse, verses 15 through 20. I don't think we're going to have them up there. I'll read them to you. Jesus says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is going face to face with friends. And he's, this is not a judgment. He's saying, I'm giving you time. But this, this, is, this is where we're at. You stay in the current religion you have, and you're not going to make it. You're going to end up spit out. But that is not my desire. I love you. That's why I'm speaking this. I love you. I'm telling you the truth. Somehow, you're doing church without me. You're doing your life with religion, but not me. And I'm coming to you. I'm knocking at your door. And I'm calling you to repent of pride. Repent of making yourself the middle and adding a little church on, a little religion on. I'm calling you to repent. You were, you are only complete in me. And when you and I are together, you have everything. You're going to have this gold refined by fire. Your life will take on a purpose. You will live for lasting things. You are going to have this garment of white where your identity will not be in shame. It will be in me as a favored son and daughter. I will put eye salve on your eyes. You will see what I see. You will not be deluded by the culture that you are living in. I love you. And I'm standing at the door knocking. Now here's what we need to, we need to grasp this. We are complete in him, but he's complete without us. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. He loves us and he wants us. 
and he pursues us. That knock, honestly, without the knock of his holiness, you and I would not even know we're sinners. You and I would just, we'd just be given over to our delusions and our pride. And it's amazing how people can think that they are it and they are, everything ends and stops with me and I'm going to do this and that and the other thing. And it's, it's delusion. And it's his knocking that gets us thinking differently. Oh, there's a God. And he knocks in a number of ways, doesn't he? To get our attention. So guys, I, I, I get it. We live in America. America, you get sick, you don't pray, you go to the doctor. You, you, you have a need, you go out and fulfill it. You, and if you can't, then you get, put it on your credit card. And, and, and there's just, we live in a very deluded culture. <laughs> and it's crept into the church. You want to have fire in your heart again? Oh, just believe the gospel. Just realize that Jesus needs to be the center, not you. And let him be Jesus in you. All right. And then finally, we're almost done. Agreeing. Agreeing with God. Agreeing with his holiness. Agreeing with his right to judge. And then thirdly, agreeing with his redemption. So they lowered... Rahab got this rope and lowered the spies down by this rope. But before they left, they gave her a scarlet cord. It's a bright red cord. It would be very, very easily seen. And he said, they said to her, you hang this out your window. And when we see that cord, it will be a sign that you will be saved. As long as this cord is out there, you will be saved. You and your household. It is the picture of the Passover. As soon as God sees the blood uh, of the lamb on the doorposts and and on on the homes, he will pass over. Judgment will not visit that home. The interesting thing about archaeology is they have found... Um, one place in the walls of Jericho where the wall did not fall down. Her home was built into the wall of the city. And Timothy Mahoney is interviewing this guy uh, that is telling him all about it. He says, says, aren't you biased because it was a biblical guy? Aren't you you biased toward the Bible? And he says, listen, every archaeologist is biased. I will freely acknowledge I'm biased. But he said, I can't make up these facts. And the truth is, there's one small part of the wall that didn't fall down. God was faithful. So here it is today, guys. God has made a way of redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world, the holy God, the completely other than God, walked in human flesh, lived a perfect life, and he, he, he died. He was the lamb that every other lamb was pointing to for the sins of the world. And he is inviting anyone to find redemption in him. God's heart for you is not judgment, it's redemption. So look at John chapter 5, verse 24. This is absolutely stunning. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Pastor Tom, doesn't that contradict what you said earlier, that we're all going to have a judgment day and that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of, of, of God? It seems, to, it seems to contradict it. Here's what this means. <laughs> there will be a day where we stand before God. But there will be no judgment for sin. Why? How can a holy God, how can there be no judgment for sin from a holy God? Here's how. In God's mind, sin was already judged in Christ on the cross. A holy God put his full judgment on sin by Jesus dying in our place. So it's not that God is going to overlook sin. He forgives sin based on the fact that it has already been judged. The judgment seat of the believer is not for sin. It's for works. It's, it's rewards that God has for those that served him, that worked for him. It is God saying, thank you. There is, you need to get rid of the image of there being a movie theater that shows every wicked thing you ever did, every horrible thought, every lost thing. Get rid of that picture. God, there is no tape. It, God's washing it away in Christ. This is his redemption. Judgment stops sin. And the greatest judgment that ever happened was on the cross where Jesus took your sin and my sin. God's heart today is redemption, not judgment. Now here's what I saw this week like I have never seen it before. Family salvation. I want you to hear the promise originally to Abraham in, in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In your seed, one, speaking of Christ, every family on the earth will be blessed. Family. Did you notice that it's Noah and his family that are saved? That it's Lot and his family that are saved, that it's Rahab and her family. I mean, Joshua, the, the spies say to her, you, whoever you can get in here, get your mother, your father, your aunt, your siblings, their children, grandpa and grandma, whoever you get in here, whoever's in this house will be saved. It was Rahab and her family. But to me, one of the most powerful ones in the New Testament, it's, it's Acts 16, 31. It's one of the first verses I memorized. It is the scene where Paul and Silas um, are freed from uh, prison by a supernatural earthquake and the jailer's going to kill himself because everybody's escaped. And Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're here. And the jailer cries out, what shall I do? And he says this, he says these words. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. I pray with a guy, we, we meet once a month, kind of a discipleship thing, and, and I was telling him, this is on Thursday, I told him what I was going to preach on and asked him to pray for it, and, and he says, Pastor Tom, isn't it interesting that at the Passover, the blood was not applied one by one, it was onto the home. The blood was on the home. And everybody in the home would be saved. 
If you are saved, you are the key to the rest of your family. And God's, God's got your whole family on his list. This is a family salvation. However hardened they seem to be, however far away they are, listen, they are on God's list because you're in. If you get saved today and you don't know of a single person in your family that's saved, your family will be put on a list today because this is for every family on the face of the earth. So uh, I can have the worship team come on back. Um, this afternoon, we are doing a Zoom um, with all of my relatives. This is my cousins and uncles and aunts on the Flaherty side. And we have been doing this since the pandemic started. My sister Denise got it started where each week we've been featuring. My, my dad is from a huge family. There were nine siblings and some of them are still alive. My dad died in 1990. Um, but what we've been doing is telling, taking, taking a fa- one of the uncles, one of the aunts, and tell stories. And if they're alive, they tell some of the stories. But everybody, everybody gets to chum in. And, of course, this is part of what's happened during the pandemic is you, you just find and connect. And, well, it just turns out that today at 2 o'clock, the Zoom call is about my dad. My dad was a twin. He was the oldest. Um, and he was hes just a great guy. The cousins and all of my relatives, uh, dad was kind of the hero of the reunions because he played ukulele and banjo. And we had many, many sing-alongs where everybody would be around dad and he'd be playing. And we, we all knew the songs and and they're, they're just some of the greatest highlights of our family reunions. And so that's all going to happen at 2 o'clock, and everybody will share their reflections about my dad. But I want to tell you how my dad got saved. Dad was a hard worker. He absolutely was a man of integrity. And he was very religious, we went to church every Sunday to our church. But he had gotten into philosophy and got into, there's, there's a problem in the, in the Flaherty. The Flaherty's have a problem with pride. Let's just say it. Let's just put it right out there. And, and he had gotten into philosophy. And, and when I got saved, my family all thought I was in a cult. And, uh, and so I would have these one-on-one conversations with my dad. And I knew exactly where he is. And his philosophical thing was, no, Jesus cannot be the only way that every good person is going to go and every religion is touching the elephant and da-da-da-da-da. And, and, and he just had his own, his own take on things. And so I, I knew, I knew he's not ready to meet the Lord. Well, in 1990, he came down with cancer. And we did not catch it until it had spread. And it was, it was all through his body. And so I was crying out for a healing for my dad. 
crying out that God would, would touch him and heal the cancer. And one day I'm doing my one-year Bible, and I read this verse, and it leaps off the page. And it's 2 Samuel 14, 14. I want you to see this verse. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. God told me a number of things. One, the cancer's not from me. I don't kill people. <laughs> I'm not the author of death. Cancer's not from me. But he also said, I'm not going to heal your dad, but I'm going to use the cancer. You watch it. He devises ways. His big way, of course, is Jesus dying on the cross. That's, he's devised a way that anybody can come and be saved. But he doesn't just devise big ways. He devises small ways. He's got a way to bring every single person. And he just told me, watch, I've devised a way. And I'm going to use this cancer. And here's what happened. The cancer spread in my, my dad's brain, they said, was like Swiss cheese. And he became very, very simple. The one that had been so smart became very simple. And he would, we would do the smallest kindness and he'd cry and just say he loved us. And he became very childlike. And, and as it got to the end, I have, I have five siblings that we, we had moved him home hospice had moved him home so we had a bed right in the living room and we were the nurses we would we would take shifts each night and uh and I knew that I was not going to be the one to lead my dad to Christ there was too much pride there was just too much mm. I, I mean we just we were a little like this and uh, my pride, his pride, whatever. I knew I just wasn't going to be able to be the one that was used to bring him. But I prayed for him. We used to have at Lake City Church a prayer meeting downstairs on Sunday night. There was always a Sunday night service, and there was an hour prayer meeting downstairs. And we would meet down there. We really all prayed individually, but we all prayed in that place together. And so every Sunday night, I would pray for my dad. I'd pray for my dad's salvation. I prayed that he would, he would be saved. And... Uh, so this one Sunday night comes, and I go to pray for my dad. I can't. Joy just starts erupting out of me. And all I can do is thank God that dad is saved. And I'm like, that's weird. And I would try to pray for him to be saved again. And I could. Joy would just, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea what's happened, but dad is already saved. This is, this is a Sunday night. And so after the service that night, I go back to Milton, which is where I'm from. It's about a half hour down the, the highway. Um, I get down there. I come into our house on Green Hill Circle, and my sister, Katie, is waiting for me. Now, Katie, after I got saved, Katie was the first person to get saved after me. Katie has been and is a radiant Christian. All these, She's actually going to speak here this summer. Um, but uh, but Kate, everybody in our family at that time hated it when Katie and I talked about God. It was just like, oh, get away from us. You think you're better than us and da-da-da. So Katie has to pull me into the utility room. She said, Tommy, let me tell you what happened. She says, Friday night, I'm the nurse on duty, and Dad was having a horrible night. He was just wrestling. 
And about midnight, he just cried out and he said these words. All right, what's the barrier to Jesus? And she says, Tommy, I came and, and, I, and I told him what the gospel was. And I said, Dad, you need to accept Christ. And I said, I said Dad, I'm going to pray a prayer. And, and you just pray it however you want to after me. And so she prayed the prayer. And he did not pray out loud. He just silently. But when she was done with the prayer, he squeezed her hands. And Katie says, Tommy, do you think that's it? Is it possible that that's it? Is it, it? Could it possibly be that simple that God just took that little prayer and now Dad is saved? I said, Katie, I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I told her what had happened an hour earlier. And so she's crying, I'm crying. Would you mind standing to your feet? We're going to do a song, and I have a prayer that I'm going to do after the song, but I have a prayer I need to do before the song. So if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes, bowing your head for just a moment. Friend, this is how the gospel works. It is this simple. God loves you. And Jesus died for you. He is alive today and he knocks on human beings' hearts. He comes and he knocks and he draws and he reveals himself and he says, I love you. I want you. I died for you. But it is critical for you to know something. There is a difference between him knocking and you opening. Just because he's knocking does not mean you're saved. You have to open the door and repent. You have to say, God, I'm sorry I've been the middle. I'm sorry it's been about me. I'm sorry I've done my own thing. I've gone my own way. God, come in. I want to be saved. I want to agree, not just with your holiness and your right to judge me, but I want to agree with your redemption. I want to agree that what Jesus did was for me and that it was enough so that I could be saved. So if that's you, the reason why I've got every head bowed and every eye closed is between you and God. The reason why I have people raise their hand is somebody led me in a prayer to open my door. So I, I just like to do that for people. So if that's you, if Jesus is knocking and you want to open your door and ask him to save you, would you just raise your hand real high right now, long enough for me to see it? I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. See those hands in the balcony. See this hand up front. God bless you. Moving across the... I see this hand and this hand and this hand and this hand. God bless you. I'm up in the other balcony now. Okay. I'd like everybody that raised their hand. Maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you wish you had. You can still get in on this. Would you just slip your hand over your heart right now and pray something like this. In childlike faith. That's what happened with my dad. It took him becoming like a child. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you are holy and owe me nothing. 
But I also believe that you love me, that you died for me, and that you are knocking, you are the one knocking on my heart right now. And Lord, I want to open my door right now by faith. I want to repent of being the center. I want to repent of it being all about me and and my ability and my plan and my everything. God, please take your rightful place. Come in, I repent. And I receive this gift that you paid for called eternal life. Wash me with the blood of the Lamb. I ask in Jesus' name. So maybe, maybe like me, you have found it very difficult to win your family to the Lord. I want you to know, God wants you to know, they are on his list. Commit your family to God. Believe God for your family, the whole one. He's got ways that he devises. He doesn't want one of them banished. This is your end, and therefore your whole family's in. They all have to respond, but, but they're coming in. They're coming in. He's got a plan for them. And so here's how we do that. We commit them to God, recognizing we're probably not going to be the one that does it. God's going to raise somebody else up. But at the same time we pray that prayer, we make ourselves available for God to reach out to somebody else's family member. We're the key that's going to help somebody else. And so let's lift our families to the Lord. So Father, I lift up every son, every daughter, every mom, every dad, every uncle, every aunt, every niece, every nephew, every grandparent. Lord, whoever Rahab could get in that house would all be saved. Every single one would be saved. You get them in the house, they will be saved. Jesus, we thank you that it really was that easy that my dad just needed to cry out to Jesus. He didn't even come to an altar and he didn't didn't pray it out loud, but it was enough because the gospel is that good. Now, Father, we ask you to forgive us about our unbelief about our families. The problem is, of course, we know our families. (laughs) And and so it's real. how, How would God ever save them? Lord, that is not for us to know. It's simply for us to know you're going to. You're devising ways. If you have to bring them out, bring them in. And the final day, my dad died four days after that prayer. If you have to bring them in at the 11th hour, you'll bring them in. But you're devising ways because you don't want them banished. So, Father, we commit our families to you. We commit them to you. We believe you for every one of our family members. And then, Father, we make ourselves available to share the good news with whoever you might lead us to, including our family. God, we thank you for this. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Woohoo!